heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to the voice of a nation. This is Dr. Lee for America in for Malcolm. And we are talking today about vaccine passports. Whatever happened to the 70s mantra, my body, my choice. I remember from the early days in my medical career that this was a push by the feminist to support abortion on demand and in fact was one of the arguments used to support Roe v. Wade the before the Supreme Court. And suddenly today in 2021, we find that our ability to decide our medical treatments, decide whether or not we will take a vaccine is being assaulted on all directions. So what happened to my body, my choice? Are we still Americans with a decision that we can work out with our own physicians about what to do for medical treatment and what to do about preventing diseases? With me today are two national and even international leaders in the movement to understand the COVID illness, the SARS-CoV-2 virus ramifications, what it does to the body, what ways there are to treat it, and what ways there are to prevent illness. Dr. McCullough is with me today. He is, as many of you have come to learn, he is a cardiologist, internist, and epidemiologist, and has been a passionate leader in the movement for early home-based outpatient treatment of COVID to prevent hospitalizations and death. He and his international team published the the world's first peer-reviewed medical review paper that outlined the pathophysiologic basis for ambulatory early treatment, what stages of the illness there are, and how we can use existing medicines to treat them. And then we worked on the patient guide in layman's language, COVID patientguide.com. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for being with us today. And also with us today is Dr. Paul Elias Alexander, who is a PhD and Master of Science specialist with extensive training in evidence-based medicine and clinical epidemiology, as well as a research methodologist His graduate schooling at Oxford in the UK was also complemented and supplemented with University of Toronto and McMaster in Hamilton, Ontario. He has training in epidemiology of bioterrorism at Johns Hopkins under Dr. Donald Henderson, who, as some of you may have forgotten, was one of the leaders in working on eradicating smallpox many years ago. 
Dr. Alexander has worked as a consultant for the World Health Organization in Geneva on COVID um, reviews and meta-analysis of data. He's also served as a COVID pandemic advisor for the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services in the prior Trump administration. We could not be more honored than to have these two international leaders and impeccable credentialed physician scientist leaders to join us today. Welcome, Dr. McCullough and Dr. Alexander. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Dr. Alexander, you have written a powerful article for the American Institute of Economic Research that came out April 14th on vaccine passports versus freedom itself. And I would encourage our listeners to go to that site to read your article. But Tell us some of the, the concerns that you have. What are the harms of vaccine passports? And is it folly to even be discussing this? Uh, thank you, doctor. Um, well, I think, I think one of the first issues that one has to keep in mind is that uh, we are still talking about um, vaccinations for SARS-CoV-2 that are still experimental. These uh, vaccines have not gone through the full FDA BLA approval process. So the FDA has not subjected the vaccines to a proper assessment in terms of efficacy and safety. And uh, one of the main issues is the safety component. Um, we don't have the safety data that we need to, to, to make a credible assessment. And the problem with this is that um, uh, the normal duration of time needed to look at safety and safety signals uh, these particular vaccines did not have. And I think as time has gone by, one has to question, you know, some researchers would say, well, we use excessively large sample sizes to accommodate for that um, lack of time. But when you think about it and you add some common sense to it, that if the signals are happening, uh, uh, let's say generally as an example, a year out, um, and you run these studies for four months, six months, et cetera, you would not have run it for the amount of time to detect those signals. And regardless of the sample size that you used. So I think that's a false argument. And uh, we have a lot of concerns there. And there are a lot of ethical and privacy concerns because even if these vaccines turn out to be completely harmless and safe, and I am not one who's hoping that they are not, in no way, and I don't think anyone in this discussion or even the C19 group or any credible researcher or scientist wants that because we want the best for the American population always and the world. But the issue here is that um, even if they prove to be safe, uh, the fact that, that they have not gone through full uh, safety review and won't be for at least two to three years raises many questions. And now we're talking about a vaccine passport that if I, as a person, for different reasons, decide that I don't want to take the vaccine, it could be that I have had COVID before and I was and I had recovered, I cleared the virus. It could be that I just don't want to take the vaccine. We're going to start relegating people into a two-tier system, those with the vaccine, those without, and therefore those with passports, those without. And then you're going to start denying me of services. 
And that's serious, serious ethical and privacy challenges there. So we are in an unprecedented territory here. And I think it's an unacceptable invasion of our privacy and an overreach by the governments because you can't, just based on the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada or the Constitution in, say, in the United States, et cetera, how could you deny people services potentially or deny them uh, all of their rights, et cetera, based on whether they have a vaccine passport or not? Again, for a vaccine that's still experimental and um, people have the right, once they're properly informed, that they can make a decision whether they want the vaccine or not. These vaccines are not mandated by law. So I think to then take the step to impose a passport so that you can't get on a plane or you can't get services in a restaurant is outrageous. And I think um, these have been floated out. And once governments and these high level people begin these discussions, you know that is where they're going. So they're testing the water and they're seeing what we could, they're probing the population to see how much pushback and the discussion. So that's why we decided in the C19 group, some of us in the group, Dr. Howard Tenenbaum, Dr. Parvez Dara, et cetera, that we would write. And we, we realized that we cannot at this stage because we've been trying fight these governments and their task forces, even though we are, we are, we are hammering away at them we decided that we're gonna go straight to the population. We're gonna start writing to the people and publish as much as we can to inform the public. We are not your clinicians. We are prognosticators and contrarians who are just asking you to think constructively, use some common sense and make your own decisions, not just because a government or a medical expert on television tells you something. You as a human being, a lay person have the right to reflect and assess the evidence yourself and demand the evidence as to why. So when they come and tell us vaccine passports, we need to ask them why. What is the evidence for this? It's, it's, it's akin to we need to vaccinate children. There's absolutely no evidence to vaccinate. There's, there's no risk that children require vaccinations. So we need to demand this evidence and say, you just said, Dr. Fauci, or you, the CDC, said we, we're going to vaccinate children six months to 12 years old, et cetera. Well, you just said that. Well, where's the data you're looking at? Because all of the data I have looked at, me, Paul, I've seen no data, zero, to suggest children should be vaccinated, young people should be vaccinated. So come and bring it to the table, give it to the public so we could be properly informed. So when you talk about vaccine passports now, digital passports, give us the evidence so that we could have a proper debate and that we could make a decision. That, that is exceptionally well said, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think the biggest problem has been the lack of data, the lack of accurate information to patients as they are being pushed into getting this vaccine. I mean, we're looking at, as of today, about 138 million Americans have already been vaccinated and they're vaccinating a, about a, a 1.3 million a day, according to the CDC data. So people are rushing into this without adequate safety information. Patients aren't adequately informed. I want to ask Dr. McCullough to address two points. 
that I think would really help our listeners understand this situation better. Dr. McCullough, point one I'd like you to comment on, because you did such a, a good job every time I've heard you address this, is would you explain, is a vaccine the only way that people can become immune to COVID? I think most, I, mean, I think too many Americans and many around the world have the idea that getting a vaccine is the only way to become immune. I'd like you to address that. And then I'd really like for you to comment about the difference between the safety disclosures that are required in an emergency use authorization ruling, which we're currently operating under, versus full FDA approval. I think if our audience understood those key points and, and what are the other ways of becoming immune besides a vaccine, and what are the differences between vaccine immunity and other, that would help a great deal to give them information to make decisions. Dr. Lee, thanks for that question. And these are my opinions and not those of my institutions or anyone else. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to understand that um, SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19 is a treatable illness at home. The protocols in the United States, uh, Brazil and elsewhere have clearly demonstrated 85% reductions in hospitalization and death with early treatment. Uh, when early treatment's applied, it reduces spread, hospitalizations and death, and then patients get to the other side of immunity. As Dr. Alexander uh, indicated, the natural immunity from the preclinical data, uh, as well as the clinical data is far superior to any immunity that could be inferred from a vaccination. And the natural immunity appears not to be, uh, it cannot be improved upon uh, we have very good data now with 111 million individuals in the world who's had uh, SARS-CoV-2 that uh, there is no significant risk of reinfection. My great concern with passports and vaccine passports is that they may not be about COVID. Uh, they may be an attempt for something other than COVID. When you think about vaccination, and I'm a uh, internal medicine a doctor, cardiologist, I'm fully vaccinated with every proven vaccine uh, that I need to receive as a professional and as a patient. I uh, use vaccines in my practice like I use drugs every day. It's my decision to use vaccines. And um, when you look at the COVID-19 vaccine, it's very similar to the influenza vaccine. If you've noticed, we don't have a passport program for influenza vaccine. Uh, we don't have a passport program for pneumococcal vaccine or meningococcal vaccines. Vaccines uh, of these nature are designed to protect the individual. They're not designed to protect others. It's a very important concept. This isn't like smallpox where we're going to get to zero cases, and this is about population protection. Um, my concern is uh, that passports are not about COVID because none of the passport uh, proposals have prioritized COVID recovered patients. COVID recovered, if they're gonna have a green passport, there ought to be a gold uh, first class passport for COVID recovered patients because they can neither receive nor transmit the virus. But the vaccinated patients seem to be this uh, central focus of passports and travel. The vaccines are simply not good enough. And people have, have, have wondered, well, what happens when people are in a privileged vaccine passport uh, airline flight 
and they have COVID and they pass it to each other and they become COVID recovered. So as COVID recovered, do they pass out of the program? Are they no longer qualified? When you think about this at face value, it really is ludicrous to have a passport uh, system based on the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. And that um, I'm very suspicious that uh, this has uh, another agenda with respect to uh, control over individuals, databasing, um, about behavior uh, uh, modification, other things that uh, have been seized upon with this uh, overreach of the vaccine passport system. Now, the EUA, the emergency use authorization, is very clear in the consent. The um, vaccine is not proven. In the consent form, the word investigational is used. In the consent form, it indicates that the efficacy is unknown and it indicates that the safety is unknown. And the statement on safety in the consent form indicates that the safety concerns range from a mild injection reaction all the way to death. And that's all that's stated in the consent form. So I agree with Dr. Alexander, until we have a full breadth of information on safety and efficacy, these vaccines are uh, put out by the governments as purely elective. They cannot be made anything more than purely elective at this point in time. And based on the scientific data, um, I think the, the whole vaccine passport idea is uh, ill-conceived and really is a threat to freedom. Well, I think it's a massive threat to freedom, and we've certainly never had a, a passport based on the flu vaccine. For example, as you pointed out, I, I can remember getting a smallpox certificate to travel overseas when I got my first passport many years ago, but that was that's a different type of vaccine, a different type of population issue, as you so correctly pointed out. I'd like to come back to a little bit more information for our listeners on natural immunity from having COVID. How is the natural immunity in simple terms different from the immunity that is developed after having this particular mRNA vaccine that Pfizer and Moderna are, we're using in the US now that the J&J one was paused. In brief, there are three levels of immunity to the virus. One is antibodies, and most of the listeners are, uh, are familiar with antibodies at this point in time. There are cellular-based immunities that really are, are T cells and our B cells uh, develop receptors that can identify the virus and manage it. And then there's innate immunity, and that is the individual ability of a cell itself to, to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with the virus and take it out. Uh, we have innate immunity in a, a kind of a featured line of cells called natural killer cells. And we knew very early on from experiments done in test tubes that the cellular-based immunity with the messenger RNA vaccines was very modest. It's probably 100 to 1,000 times fold stronger with the natural uh, infection. So the That's natural infection, oh, it's uh, dramatically different. So what we know with the natural infection is the body recognizes all parts of the virus. So the spike protein, the nucleocapsid, the polymerases, the lipid bilayer, uh, uh, all the different uh, components of the virus are recognized. We develop a full and diverse library of antibodies, very diverse library of antibodies. 
and then this very robust T cell, natural killer cell, and innate immunity. With the vaccines, the vaccines all code for the Wuhan wild-type spike protein only. And there's a few differences between Moderna and Pfizer where they adjusted it so to try to adjust for what's called reactogenicity. With the vaccines, it's interesting. The initial antibody response to the vaccine is way stronger than the natural infection, way stronger. And that gave me a hint that, in fact, the body is probably overproducing the spike protein with the uh, injection. Now, having said that, everybody who receives the vaccine becomes an immunologic clone of one another. So there's no diversity. There's no diversity uh, from one person to another. They are immunologically the same with respect to the spike protein. It's a limited library of antibodies against the spike protein, nothing against the nucleocapsid. And as I mentioned, uh, almost nothing with respect to T cell immunity. That high spike in antibodies that one gets with the uh, vaccination uh, trails off relatively rapidly. That, so the, the immunity is very different. The current immunity that an American would face would be to one of 14 different strains circulating in the United States. So from person to person, we probably actually don't get the same strain. And as a population, we have diversity of immunity. So the population of COVID recovered patients in the United States have diversity, robustness, and the immunity is durable and complete. It's a very important concept. And it is far superior to vaccine immunity. And as Dr. Alexander pointed out, it cannot be improved upon. In fact, the FDA and the manufacturers knew this. They excluded COVID recovered patients, suspected COVID recovered patients, and even those with antibodies were excluded because they knew they couldn't improve upon that. And uh, in fact, when the FDA and CDC uh, 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 announced that uh, COVID recovered patients should be vaccinated, that was an act of what's called malfeasance. Malfeasance is committing wrongdoing by a body of power over a population. That's malfeasance to recommend use of an investigational agent that's never been tested in a population before because, um, because it can only cause harm and not uh, benefit. And sure enough, from Manchester United Kingdom, in a study of uh, 2002 individuals, Methudius is the first author, 26% of patients were needlessly vaccinated because they were COVID recovered, and they had a 56% excess increase of severe vaccine reactions, including hospitalization. So um, I can tell you right now, as a practicing doctor, in my view, COVID recovered patients should not receive the vaccine. They shouldn't get it under any circumstances. The vaccine is contraindicated. And now it's clear that these patients have increased risk of severe vaccine reactions. And so even along the current CDC guidance, COVID recovered patients should not receive the COVID-19 vaccine. I wanna come back and have you repeat that statistic that you just said, COVID recovered patients who got the vaccine did you say had a 56% chance of adverse events? They had a 56% excess chance. And so that would be an odds ratio of 1.56. But that's not trivial when you apply it to a broad population, a population that has no opportunity for benefit and only an opportunity for harm. There's not a single study demonstrating benefit 
of any type in vaccinating COVID recovered patients. Why would I take a vaccine right now that is conferring protection just in mild illness? So therefore, instead of me having a serious runny nose, I may end up just getting a sniffle. I mean, what is the benefit to me when you're also telling me that we have not done the safety part of the trial? And the reality about it is now, like the Israeli data, we are finding out that uh, Dr. Rich, we were having a discussion where there are 50 to 60% of, of new COVID patients coming into doctors. Uh, the doctors are reporting that 50 to 60% of them have been double vaccinated. So something is wrong. And I think Dr. Fauci and they are not leveling with the public that these vaccines with this very narrow, spike-specific conferred immunity is not providing the sterilizing type of immunity that even we would argue that the natural immunity is giving us, as Dr. McCullough says, in, in, in the essence that the natural immunity has such multiple looks at the viral ball, at the spike, so it's producing a lot of immune cells and response to the virus that the vaccine with this narrow specific spike is not. So we are having problems, as you see, with the variants, et cetera. So, so it's not just the question about the passports. To really uh, unpack the passport question, which is nonsensical and, and, an, and an overreach and a violation of rights on so many levels, we need to ask ourselves, you are asking us, to engage in vaccine passports for a vaccine that is not even stopping me from getting infected or from me transmitting it. So what is the purpose of the passport? Why? Well, I think that's exactly the common sense question that lay people across the, the country and around the world are asking. This Dr. Lee, I wanted to I wanted to mention that the audience should understand that under President Trump's executive order, all the positive test results get reported to the National Data Center at Johns Hopkins. But these test results do not distinguish between uh, uh, de novo cases of COVID-19, post-vaccination cases of COVID-19, and then asymptomatic false positive cases. None of the hospitalization statewide registries discriminate between uh, natural COVID infections and then post-vaccination infections. And as Dr. Alexander said, clinicians like myself, about 60% of my current COVID patients are fully vaccinated and they're furious because they've taken the risk of the vaccine and now they have COVID-19. The um, CDC reported a convenient sample to the public uh, approximately two weeks ago of 5,800 individuals who had been fully vaccinated and contracted COVID-19. And the rate of hospitalization was about 7%. And so it matches uh, the natural infection just as a general uh, population statistic. So I have to tell you right now, America's being blindsided with no statistical tractability on whether the vaccine is doing anything at all. And so all the statewide public health departments are just sporadically reporting cases. There's no mechanism to keep track of this. So we saw a few, 300 cases from Washington state, another 300 from Michigan, another several hundred from Louisiana. And they're just coming out in little uh, press releases because our systems were never prepared for the eventuality of the vaccine failing. 
In fact, the vaccine could be completely failing at this point in time, and America wouldn't know. Keep in mind the randomized trials of the vaccines were done in very healthy people. In fact, many of them were healthcare workers themselves who were scared to death of the virus. And the rate of infection in both the uh, vaccinated patients and the, and the placebo was less than 1%. So that told you that Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, they recruited populations that weren't getting any exposure to COVID-19. Now we're vaccinating people who are getting real exposure. And in fact, they're getting real COVID-19. This is just staggering. I'd like to come back to that point after we take a short break. This is Dr. Lee for America with Voice of a Nation, standing in for Malcolm, here with our guests, Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Paul Alexander. We're talking about vaccine passports and we'll be right back after the break. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm with Voice of a Nation. And we are talking today about vaccines, the concerns about vaccine passports, and about our ability to freely decide our medical treatment and whether or not to get a vaccine. Our guests are Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Paul Alexander. Welcome back. And thank you both for being here. Before the break, Dr. McCullough, we were talking about your very serious concerns about patients who have gotten the vaccine and then get COVID. I've seen that in my own practice. In fact, I've seen some people who are quite sick after getting the vaccine. And, and I, I think that you raised, you and both, uh, Dr. Alexander both are raising 
absolutely critically important points that most Americans are not hearing. So I would like to address that further. And what other kinds of reactions are you seeing after people have been vaccinated? Well, let me just finish the point that's very important. In page 42 of the Pfizer FDA briefing booklet, I really want the listeners who want to dig in on this, Pfizer had reported to the FDA committee that they saw a a rash or a big um, uh, increased surge of new COVID-19 infections after the first vaccination. It almost looked like the first vaccination of the two made patients a bit more susceptible. And it really was striking compared to placebo. And now a paper out of Israel, the first author is Kustin, K-U-S-T-I-N, demonstrated the same thing. So one of the concerns is we are seeing a slight degree of what's called antibody-dependent enhancement with an immature library of antibodies that are developed after the first injection of the messenger RNA vaccines. So patients, and I've had multiple patients like this, they get one uh, injection and then they get COVID and they, they're straddled between the two injections and they don't know what to do. That was actually shown in the FDA uh, clinical trials with at least Pfizer, it's been shown in one uh, clinical paper. So the, the reader should keep this advised. I think it's been disingenuous by uh, the CDC to say that uh, recurrent infections are rare because they are they don't know the denominator, they don't know the full number, and so they're just assuming that they're rare and they're misinforming the public. But as Dr. Alexander said, I think the greatest degree of malfeasance has to do with safety in the vaccines. Worldwide, we are greater than 10,000 deaths reported associated with the vaccine to the um, CDC VAERS system and the EMA safety reporting system. The vast majority of these deaths occur within three days of vaccination. They appear to be three different kinds. One is immediate anaphylactic death in the vaccination center. This is pretty rare. The second type is called a reactogenic death where patients actually die of a severe fever, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting. They basically die of a severe COVID-like illness within a few days due to the excessive production of the spike protein. And then the third type of death is the one that was been popularized uh, uh, because of the Johnson and Johnson withdrawal and the AstraZeneca withdrawal. And that is the thrombogenic death or what's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. That occurs about two to four weeks later. uh, And it is associated with uh, thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, either cavernous venous thrombosis, portal vein thrombosis, the AstraZeneca and the J&J vaccines were related to these cerebral thrombosis, so they're pretty rare. A lot of the uh, listeners don't understand or don't know that the, J- that the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have about a 30 to 40-fold increased risk of portal vein thrombosis and a severe abdominal pain syndrome that can be fatal and land people in the hospital. So at two to four weeks, uh, thrombosis or blood clots is a serious risk. They occur in premenopausal women far more than uh, men, and they can be fatal. But the biggest thing I'm worried about is mortality. For the listeners to put this in perspective, with the 1976 uh, swine flu pandemic, we attempted to vaccinate 55 out of 220 million Americans. We had 500 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, 25 deaths, and the public health officials shut it down. They, they thought it was unacceptable. Each year, we vaccinate about 195 million people with influenza, about 20 to 30 deaths are reported. And that's considered kind of background rates that would be reported through the 
safety system. An average drug gets on the market. If we saw five unexplained deaths, it would have a black box warning on death. If we saw 50 deaths, the drug would be removed from the market. In the United States, at uh, I believe 3612 deaths right now, we have set all records with the COVID-19 vaccine being the most deadly vaccine ever unleashed on America. Well, I, I don't think uh, any of us can argue with the data. If the problem, and, and I agree with you, and I'm, I'm just shocked at what I'm seeing in my practice with patients who were otherwise, they were 50, 60, 70 year old patients who were in good health, jogging and exercising, and really had, had few major comorbidities. For the most part, patients that I've had who've had serious reactions and you and I are together treating some of them, have been people who were not obese, people who were not diabetic. They, they took care of themselves. And I, I just find it stunning that this has been such a problem and most Americans are clueless about it. They, the information has been totally suppressed and yet we are being pushed to make these um, decisions without adequate information and we're being pushed and, and coerced and told that we may risk losing our job. I, I'd like to have Dr. Alexander come back and talk a little bit more about some of the points that he made in his article, but also the second article, Dr. Alexander, that you did that I was very impressed with is you made the point that we're 14 months out in the pandemic. And what is a common sense evidence-based way forward. So I would say it this way, we're four months into the vaccine mass vaccination and we're 14 months into the COVID pandemic. Let's have both of you talk about the way forward and what needs to be done to protect the health and safety of the American public, maintain our freedoms and treat this treatable viral illness at home quickly and, and put the vaccine in context of what it can and cannot do. Okay, well, seeing that you were pivoted to me, I will take a quick stab and then Dr. McCullough could finish up. So the reality is for very grave illnesses like smallpox, influenza, TB, et cetera, we've never had vaccine passports. So on the surface, it's a no on our side. We, we don't think no, we don't think. We are absolutely convinced this is an overreach and are going to be a huge um, liability issue, uh, issues around rights, et cetera, and it's just an invasion and it has no basis. But if, if you ask me a simple question and say, Paul, the public now has been subjected to this for 14 months. Um, what do you think in terms of everything that you know, if you could put it in a box quickly and say, what, give me three points right now. What is your top three? Well, first of all, I would say it remains the rate limiting step that United States, Canada, Great Britain, France, all countries in the world have catastrophically failed to protect properly. We have failed to properly protect our elderly in the congregated settings, in their nursing homes, their long-term facilities, their assisted living facilities, the community centers they attend, even in their private homes. We have failed. This was the reason for the lockdowns in the beginning. When the, 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 the Wuhan virus 
first emerged. We said, that help us bend the curve so we could protect the elderly and we could get hospitals prepared, et cetera. But it's been 14 months, 14 months. And I have in-laws in nursing homes in Toronto. And every time we get an email or we have to rush there, it's because we are told a staff just came in and brought in new infections. So we have to lock the nursing home down. And that is a devastating situation for the nursing home residents because they are confined to their four by four room. They don't even get showers. They can't see anyone for weeks, months on end. The, the dementia escalates and they're dying slowly, painfully. And we, we, we're ripping apart their dignity. They, they just wanna see their family in the last few months of their life. So governments have failed. The United States has failed. Canada has failed because today these are still the foci of the severe illnesses and the deaths. So first of all, I would beg them, please, please for the first time, protect our elderly in those homes. And if the people you are working in it can't, fire them and get the right people. And there are options. You could sequester staff and ask them to stay in the facility for a week at a time while you get the infection under control. You could use hotels next door. You could turn to nursing schools if the staff don't want to remain. But there are things that we can do. The second thing I would do, 100% is, and this is up Dr. McCullough's, Dr. McCullough's uh, wheelhouses, we would pivot directly to issues around um, improved hand hygiene. I would only isolate the symptomatic and ill people, people who are sick, no isolation of asymptomatic people, et cetera. That was, that was very wrong. And the third thing, which is now I'm pivoting to Dr. McCullough is, I would wanna use properly and, and strongly for the first time, early outpatient treatment because it works to reduce transmission. And also in terms of the variants, the, 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 um, the, the variants don't harm uh, the early outpatient treatment, it's not impacted. So the, so the outpatient treatment, the antivirals can still work very effectively to prevent degeneration along the sequelae. But this is Dr. McCullough's expertise, so I'll pivot to him. Early ambulatory treatment, which now is state-of-the-art, includes infusion of EUA monoclonal antibodies uh, is very effective. I think the audience should know that high-risk patients over age 50 uh, with medical problems or those younger presenting with severe symptoms, that the illness is treatable it reduces spread, it markedly shortens the duration of infectivity and dramatically reduces the risk of hospitalization and death. And in the United States, uh, several groups have come up with uh, peer-reviewed proven protocols. One is featured by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Another one is featured by the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. These are all uh, kept uh, at the AAPS uh, website. There is a list of treating doctors. There's a whole series of um, listings for telemedicine services that work nationwide. And given our big efforts in the third and fourth quarter of 2020 in U.S. Senate and multiple uh, statewide uh, testimonies, early treatment kicked in at the end of December. Simultaneously, uh, new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths declined at the same time in the United States dramatically before the first person was ever fully vaccinated. And since that time, we've been on a stable low plateau uh, each day. 
and our number of deaths is staying uh, much lower than at prior levels and steady. New cases are contaminated by asymptomatic screening uh, cases, but the bottom line is they're staying stable as well. We're not gonna get to zero cases. This illness is gonna become part of a library of, cro of chronic, uh, uh, not chronic, but, but endemic yep. acute illnesses that we treat uh, in our practice. And I think we just need to move on in life with early treatment. Both Alex, Dr. Alexander, myself, and Dr. Lee uh, uh, strongly want our, our vaccinations to be safe and effective. And I, I truly hope with sacrificing over 10,000 individuals uh, to the mass vaccination program at this point in time, I, I hope there's some benefit for the remainder of the population. Uh, but we've set things up here uh, in a very deceptive way. And I want people to understand this. With the emergency use authorization, it means that products are not fully FDA approved. It means that no one has to prevent, present fair safety and efficacy balanced information. None of the regulatory laws have to be followed. Uh, it means that as stated by the FDA and the CDC, that the, the mass vaccination program is completely voluntary. And in the consent form and through all the CDC guidance, they constantly refer to the doctor. It says, if you have any questions, ask the doctor, go see your doctor to see if it's safe. So I am really calling for doctors to step because the NIH and the CDC are gonna claim no responsibility for these deaths. They're going to say, listen, we, we told you it was experimental, investigational. We told you it wasn't fully approved, and we told you to talk to your doctor. And so they are going to, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, they're not going to have any responsibility here. So I'm personally pushing for these to be fully FDA approved ASAP so we can start to enforce the regulatory laws. And probably if they got fully approved, there'd be immediate safety recall. We'd have to uh, review all the deaths come up with risk mitigation. There's something wrong with these vaccines. We've had 36, uh, 36 12 Americans die, countless numbers of Canadians. Uh, we know we're 7,000 uh, Europeans that have died, the most deadly vaccine in the history of mankind. Well, it, you know, to, you're exactly right. And, and I can recall a number of incidences, incidents over my career where drugs were pulled from the market with five or six deaths, as you mentioned earlier. And to say that we're at 3,612 deaths right now, as of this day in April, is, is absolutely staggering. But most of my patients I talk with every day have not heard any of this. And they don't know that these deaths have occurred because Yes, it's in the CDC database, and you have referred people in your McCullough report to open theirs, V-A-E-R-S.com, as a resource for people to look up the adverse events and the deaths. But most doctors don't even know that that's there. My own primary care physician doesn't know that that's, this is happening. He was shocked when I brought it up. And... I just think doctors have not been given adequate information from our public health officials to then advise patients. And not only that, we're seeing, certainly in our area, we're seeing people at getting vaccinated at grocery stores, not just pharmacies and not just these big vaccination centers. They're pushing it at grocery stores. So most of the patients that are getting the vaccines are not talking to a doctor first. I just sometimes 
uh, reach a point where I, I wonder what has happened to our sense of ethics, our medical ethics, where we are supposed to be doing what is for the benefit of the patient and not harmful. And we are supposed to be focusing on individual risk assessment. And we're doing none of them. Dr. Lee, I can say that um, I had published an op-ed in The Hill last summer called The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 vaccine. I can tell you what our public health officials are probably saying behind closed doors. They know what's going on and they have bet the house on the vaccine. And if they think they, they can get as many people vaccinated as possible before the safety data become readily understood by the public, they're willing to take this trade-off and the fallout. And I predict there will be so many public health careers that are gonna go down in flames when the public, an enraged public figures out how deadly these vaccines are. I think the same thing will happen to university officials and employers who are now mandating this vaccine, uh, which, is, which is investigational. And it's not, you know, the FDA and, and, um, and CDC are, I say it's purely voluntary, but the overreach by the university's employees now, um, I've never seen such tension in my life because the people who do know that they could die with the vaccine are so uncomfortable in this position where they're forced into it. Three days ago, Houston Methodist Hospital in Texas announced that they were going to, uh, they had been coercing um, workers for months now, uh, uh, offering them $500 to uh, take the vaccine. And they're healthcare workers. They talk to one another and they know the vaccine's got safety problems and they weren't uh, taking the vaccine. And so three days ago, Houston Methodist officials said, if they don't take the vaccine, we're gonna fire them. And then two days ago, the workers came out and said, you know what, go ahead and fire us. We're not taking the vaccine. I've never seen such tensions in my career on this. And it has to do with the fact that we are not fairly informing the public on the risks and the benefits of the program because it's EUA and our public health officials are taking a gamble. The gamble is they are racing forward to vaccinate as many as possible, and then they're gonna handle the fallout of the safety debacle later on. Well, I think you're right. Dr. Alexander, would you like to comment on that? Well, well, I, everything Dr. McCullough said is correct. And, and here's a challenge. We have factors in front of us, such as natural immunity exposure, Exposure, natural exposure immunity, I mean, where we can get natural immunity um, that is much more robust and durable and long lasting even than this vaccine induced immunity. And we have that on deck. We have early outpatient treatment. We know WHO in 2019 issued a pandemic guidance document that built upon a seminal 2006 paper by Dr. D.A. Henderson, who eradicated smallpox, which basically said of all of these mitigation steps that you took, all of the lockdowns, mass mandates, school closures, shelter in place, none of them are effective and all of them could cause catastrophic harm except improved hand hygiene and isolation of the sick, symptomatic people. Those two things, improved hand washing, an isolation of sick, ill people. Everything else you set aside. You don't disrupt the society. You don't turn it upside down. You don't cause the catastrophic harms we have with all of these lockdowns. And I agree with Dr. McCullough. In the beginning, I was 
my, my arms were around these vaccines and I was saying, my God, you know, we could end this thing. But as time has gone on and quickly, as the data and the evidence became available, I realized something because I talked to a few people and I asked them a simple question. What's your view on this vaccine that you just took? And they told me that A, they are absolutely sure it's FDA approved and B, that the FDA assessed the safety. I did not tell them because they were family of mine and I didn't want them to get afraid. I did not tell them that A, the FDA did not properly assess these vaccines, it's on EAU, and B, the FDA did not assess safety. And that's the challenge. The way Dr. McAuliffe has said is they, they, the, the, the powers that be have taken a gamble and a bet. I agree and I think they know and they are withholding the information and, and with the media, they are not fully informing the population. So the population just does not know that you are essentially part of a large phase two, phase three clinical trial. These companies are collecting their safety data now from you when you take these vaccines. So what happens if in three years with the safety information, the FDA rejects these vaccines and say, you know what? These are too unsafe. But you already have shots in your arm and we don't know the autoimmune consequences downstream. And that's the challenge here. And, and if we try to speak up, we are being canceled and smeared and slandered. That's the problem. All we are doing right now as prognosticators is we're trying to say, hold on. You people need to understand these issues. And this is the real situation and ask people to think. And uh, right where I'm living right now, there, there, there's, a, there's a, a site set up for vaccines and there's military here, there's police and people are lined up down the street. People are taking these vaccines like candy. They don't, they're not even thinking of what, what is happening. They, they just, oh, my friend took it, so I have to take it. And I just, I am shocked. I am shocked at how people are just moving along because the government is telling them to, and they trust the government. And, and, and I would have to say in this, in this situation, I'm not going to say don't trust your government, but I'm saying in this matter, full information is not being disclosed to the population and the population is not fully being consented. People are not making informed consent because they're not given the benefits and the risks. Well, I agree with what you just said because every patient of mine who went ahead and got the vaccine and didn't, didn't ask my individual risk assessment for that patient ahead of time, they all thought, as you commented, that it was FDA approved and that the safety had been, safety and effectiveness had been FDA approved, reviewed as usual. And I, I am greatly concerned about the lack of accurate information. I'm, I'm becoming more concerned about some of the coercion going on that Dr. McCullough talked about and Houston Methodist Hospital uh, making it mandatory with their employees is just mind boggling because the hospital administration should know these risks. They, should, they know how to consult the CDC database. But there's also, there was just recently discussion of a program in Los Angeles where the LA County Sheriff put Operation Homebound into motion to send out sheriff's deputies 
to forcibly vaccinate mentally handicapped children and adults in various um, care facilities. And these mentally disabled adults, there's a video that has surfaced showing the mentally disabled adults and children trying to resist the shots and later trying to do damage control, the sheriff's deputy's uh, office said, well, our deputies were fully trained EMTs. But that, did, that begs the question of why did they send the deputies out at these residences for special needs adults and children fully armed and wearing military gear and why were they forcibly vaccinating them? This is a violation of the Nuremberg Code that the civilized world has been operating under since World War II, when the Nazi war crimes and medical experiments on people, on prisoners, were, were, came to light. And those doctors who did that were put to death after the Nuremberg trials. So we're beginning to see some of these same coercive tactics and forcible vaccinations occurring now, flying in the face of every ethic all of us have operated under our whole career. It's quite alarming. I, I wanna thank you for being with us today. We're going to pause here at the end of our first hour on Voice of a Nation, and we'll be back for the second hour, continuing to talk about the issues of vaccine passports, vaccine risk, the way forward, what, what are some of our options to move forward. And just to summarize what Dr. Alexander said so eloquently, we have simple steps we can do right now to move forward safely and effectively, protect the elderly, maintain our hygiene and sanitation standards, and get early treatment. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Alexander. This is Dr. Lee for America. We will be back for the second hour of Voice of a Nation. The heart and soul of a nation beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor, honor, honor. Our soul. Soul, soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to the second hour of Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm. And we are continuing our discussion today about vaccine passports, what's at stake, and what are some of the issues around vaccination? What are some of the safety concerns? What are some of the types of people that should be getting the vaccine, those that shouldn't perhaps because of risk? What are some of the issues that we really are not addressing as thoroughly as we should? I have a very special guest with us for this second hour. Dr. Human Norchasm is a physician and scientist. 
He earned his MD and PhD degrees at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and also went on to complete a postdoctoral fellowship in immunology at University of Penn. He completed a residency in general surgery at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and a fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at Harvard Medical School's Brigham and Women's Hospital. His basic science research in immunology was supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health for over 10 years. So he's especially qualified to talk about natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity and other issues related to the COVID-19 vaccine discussion. He previously served on the medical faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard Medical School, and Thomas Jefferson University, and briefly staffed the Philadelphia VA Hospital. Currently, he's a physician, immunologist, and public health advocate in the Philadelphia area. He is also a strong women's health advocate and is the father of six children. But I want to share a more personal aspect that I came to learn about in talking with, with Dr. Norchasm about doing this interview. And that is that he and his wife, Amy Reed, also a physician, an anesthesiologist at Harvard, both went through a catastrophic ordeal in medicine that ended up costing Amy her life. And this is one that I'm very familiar with in my work in women's health and as a women's health advocate for the last 35 years, along with my work in preventive medicine. Amy, Dr. Reed was going in for what was supposed to be a routine hysterectomy and underwent a power morselation procedure, which is grinding up the tissue in the uterus and fibroids to remove the tissue through the laparoscope. And this is a procedure done in hundreds of thousands of patients across the US and has been for many years. In fact, I'm very familiar with it. Um, but unfortunately, Amy had been falsely reassured prior to surgery that there was no chance of any cancer. And it turned out that when the morselation procedure was done, she actually had a leiomyosarcoma in one of the fibroids and it was dispersed over her entire pelvis. That took her cancer from early treatable cancer stage one to stage four metastatic almost instantaneously by spreading it throughout the pelvis. And I have seen this in a few of my own patients. It was absolutely devastating. There were six children. The, it was just an, a, a staggering blow to this family. And it was the courage and tenacity and willingness of Dr. Norchasm and his wife, Dr. Reed, to speak out and take on the medical establishment about the lack of 
informed consent about the safety issues of this procedure. And what I learned and what I would encourage our listeners to do is I really think it is a powerful testimony to the courage of these two physicians who have ended up benefiting many thousands of patients from their fight against the safety violations. Watch the documentary, Kicking the Hornet's Nest. Dr. Norchasm told me about this documentary last night and I watched it. And I was extraordinarily moved by it. I, I think it is incredibly powerful. And I immediately saw many parallels to what we've been seeing with this pandemic management and the fact that patients are not being given informed consent about the fact that there are early treatments for COVID, that COVID can be a treatable illness if it's caught early. We do have medicines that work for it. I've been doing it in my practice for the last 14 months. And we're not seeing people being adequately informed about the potential for risk with the vaccines. These are approved under the emergency use authorization regulations, not full FDA informed uh, regulatory review and informed consent procedures. And patients don't realize that. They're not really being given enough information to make a wise decision. And we're seeing vaccination occurring at grocery stores and pharmacies and mass vaccination sites so that patients aren't even really being encouraged to talk with their own doctors about their medical risk. And and I, I personally feel that that's critically important to do. Now, in going into this show today, I want to say, in full disclosure, both Dr. Nortasm and I are supporters of vaccines. I've had them. He's had them. We are not saying that vaccination itself is a problem, but what we are saying is that there are some medical ethical principles and regulatory principles that have been ignored in the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. And he has been a fearless, outspoken critic of some of these issues. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nortasm. And I, I just want to say again how sorry I am at all that you and your wife went through and her tragic death at such a young age. She was only 44 and left such a beautiful family behind. It, it truly is just a tragedy beyond words. Dr. Lee, thank you. Thank you so much for, for your invitation and for for these kind words, I, uh, you know, um, yes, it's, uh, it, uh, it has been uh, a difficult and uh, tragic catastrophe um, that, that my family endured. Uh, of course, you know, in the process, we uh, both uh, Amy and I were very cognizant of the fact that because of our um, uh, connectivity to the medical establishment and our understanding of the principles of clinical medicine that guided the gynecologists to this catastrophic space for many people that we had a duty and an obligation to, um, to raise our voice and to actually uh, fight this fight. And I think that the producer of this movie, kicking the hornet's nest, uh, Kyle Floyd, uh, really did, uh, the whole fight, uh, justice. He, um, he, um, 
was very, very particular about making sure that both sides of this perspective are captured, even though a lot of our colleagues in gynecology refused to speak with them. Certainly at the level of ACOG and AGL, folks were in absolutely protectionist mode, but there were some very ethical gynecologists and gynecological oncologists who willingly spoke to him. So I think the whole picture is very vividly captured. And, and you know, I think it was a, it was a labor of love for Kyle. Um, so I, you know, I thank him very much for building this movie and telling the story. And I thank you for this invitation today. It was extraordinary to watch that. And I, as I said, I was deeply moved by it. And not only that, I, I, I quickly saw so many parallels with what we're all going through. And I, your courage to speak out and take on the establishment and kick the hornet's nest again with the FDA, your recent letters to the FDA, I'd like you to tell our audience um, a little bit more about the recent letters you've written to the FDA. And I want us to talk further about natural immunity. You're an immunologist, you can speak to that. And the difference between natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. And what is what are your thoughts about how we can more rationally and safely approach the vaccination issue and early treatment issues to help provide balance to the public? Sure. Um, uh, so, Dr. Lee, thank you so much for, for uh, posing this question. I'll, I'll start by telling you um, the connectivity to the experience that my family and my wife had um, with respect to medical harm and how it connects to the vaccine issue. Um, yes, I, I am an immunologist. I, I spent a significant amount of time. I, I spent about 10 years doing a PhD in immunology, several years of postdoctoral fellowship, several years of a faculty level research uh, with NIH funding on cellular immunology. So I, you know, I, I do feel um, qualified. I'm not uh, out of step speaking about the kinetics and dynamics of T cell and B cell responses to foreign antigens, to viral antigens. So I, you know, I'm, I'm quite comfortable from a basic science perspective speaking about this vaccine and I, and I feel that I'm qualified to do so. Um, with respect to the connectivity to um, my wife's complication and harm that she received uh, from in the gynecological space. Um, basically, what what Amy and I got tuned into, um, Dr. Vliet, is that um, in our healthcare system, uh, we seem to be quite overtly focused and comfortable in the majority benefit space, where you know we have these utilitarian service lines where our evidence-based processes have demonstrated majority benefit um, and efficacy, which, which essentially efficacy is synonymous with majority benefit. Because you see, if, if the majority did not benefit from some medical therapy, that medical therapy, the marketplace would get rid of it automatically or, or the litigation space would. But when, when you have a situation where a minority subset of people are in harm's way, it's much, much more difficult and ingrained um, for, for a practice to be actually subjected to regulation or to criticism. So in the case of Amy's complication, the, the incidence rate was one in 350, and that's substantially less than half a percent, right? So if one in 350 women are getting their lives devastated by this practice that's, you know, very well lubricated financially and it is a service line product uh, in the healthcare space, well, you know, the system has a way to undermine or, or sort of in a way whitewash, if you will, the magnitude of harm. 
And, and this was the case with the laparoscopic power morselator. I, you know, I think that it's at this point pretty much indisputable that for about 20 years, this, this harm that was happening to about 101 and 350 women was being undermined and ignored. Uh, the reality was that this was actually, um, you know, the FDA, uh, the, the Government Accountability Office did, a, did an analysis and, and they proved that really for 20 years, the, F, the first time the FDA heard about this complication that was happening to literally hundreds of women um, on a yearly basis, thousands of women, the FDA heard about it 20 years later from Dr. Amy Josephine Reed, uh, who was my, my late wife. So, so um, the idea that minority harm in our system is something that's being ignored and, and downplayed and, and sort of um, put on the back burner, if you will, because the majority are benefiting is a, is a particularly big problem. And, and so when it came to this vaccine um, concept, you know, I, um, you know, I'm an immunologist and I really do believe in the, in the power of vaccines and controlling epidemics. But uh, one of the things that was very apparent to me right off the bat when the vaccine became feasible, and, and really I have to say Operation Warp Speed and, and folks um, within it did a fantastic job. Some really very smart people um, developed this um, vaccine and delivered it to America. But one of the, one of the most unusual aspects of this vaccine campaign is that, and, and really unprecedented, is that we are deploying a vaccine in the midst of an outbreak where literally millions of people are already recently infected or have been previously infected and are naturally immune. So the conundrum that that creates is that if we approach a one-size-fits-all type, type approach, uh, which is sort of similar to what the gynecologists were doing with morselation, they were just assuming all these uh, fibroids are benign and they were morselating them. And in one in 350 case, these, these women were, were, had cancers and the cancers would be spread and upstaged. Well, that was a one-size-fits-all approach. In the case of the vaccine, you know, my, my serious concern very quickly became that if we deploy this vaccine in the middle of a pandemic, where you have literally millions of people, um, you know, uh, infected with the natural virus, that you're actually doing something in a one-size-fits-all fashion. And that two problems could arise. Number one is that folks who are already naturally immune, um, who many of whom and most of whom do not actually need to be immunized because they're already immunized, are getting an unnecessary medical treatment. So really the only thing that they're buying is the, is the, uh, are the complications associated with this medical treatment. And every medical treatment, as you know, has complications associated, including vaccines. Uh, but secondarily is that, is that if a person has been recently infected, the antigenic footprint of this uh, virus persists in the tissues of, this, of these individuals. And, and when the vaccine force act reactivates T cells um, and, and B cells in this, in, in this individual, that you can actually create a systemic inflammatory response and tissue, tissue damage, which in a minority subset of people could be harmful. So again, the concern became minority harm. Um, unfortunately, uh, what I've encountered is, a, is, a, is an extremely rigid um, establishment structure at the FDA, the CDC and academia, which is, which is in an eerie way, identical to what, what Amy and I confronted when we started to speak out about morselation. That's exactly what struck me when I watched the documentary because I, I knew about all of that that was going on in that very issue in gynecology. And I had been dealing on another front as involving um, 
the hiding of information about the Norplant implantable contraceptive that the pharmaceutical company knew about some of the harms of that, which were not disclosed. And I actually testified as a plaintiff's witness in some of the federal lawsuits on that, a class action suits. So, so this whole concept of minority harm is one that struck me very, very much when I saw the documentary last night about the story of your wife's experience, I, I just immediately thought, oh my gosh, this is exactly what we're seeing well, and, and, you know, in the whole COVID situation. And you know, the, 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 the problem with minority harm is, it could be in any space, really not just in medicine, that it, is that if you sacrifice minority subsets of people for the benefit of the majority, right? What ends up happening is that over time um, in, in our society, you, you build up a, a vast number of people who've been harmed in all different sectors of the economy or in the healthcare space. And these, these folks are harmed, you know, and harmed people essentially for the most part exit our democracy and everyone linked to them is harmed and disenfranchised. And so I think that we, we should really be careful in the United States not to ignore the problem of minority harm. And again, it could be in medicine or it could be anywhere. Now, the pandemic, as you and I discussed prior to this show, has posed a real challenge to us and has really exposed a lot of our weaknesses, you know, not only at the, at the level of socioeconomics and ethnic disparities and racial disparities, but also, also with respect to our capacity to have rational discourse about science, about therapies, about vaccination. And unfortunately, this, this really goes against the grain of what it means to be American. You know, and, and, and really, I think we, we are really at, a, at an inflection point right now with respect not only to you know, how we uh, economically and uh, as a society get through this challenge, but also fundamentally what, what defines this nation um, and its, and its uh, conduct and its operation. Uh, with respect to how majority benefit and democracy is balanced against the rights of individuals and minorities. So I think this, this pandemic really has posed a lot of challenges and, and really an, uh, is, is frankly a, an opportunity for us to fix a lot within our system. So I think we should take this opportunity, but I don't want to digress too much. Uh, so please go ahead and go ahead and- uh, I think that's a good point to, uh, because I think it is important to, to help broaden this discussion. I mean, the vaccine question about minority harm, particularly for COVID recovered patients who really do have a much higher risk of adverse events. For, I, I think that is, is a capsule illustration of the bigger problem. And if we can discuss some ways of resolving this in a rational, logical, balanced way related to the vaccine and how to more um, rationally deploy it, I think that gives us a model for other areas. Are I, absolutely, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, look, you know, here, here's, the, here's the issue with the vaccine. And, and, I, and I truly, um, I, I, don't, um, I, I don't think uh, uh, this is hyperbole to say but I think that one of the biggest problems that we're confronting right now is this blanket 
mandate for vaccination that's coming uh, coming about. Not only has the entire establishment's narrative, you know, you, you turn on CNN or MSNBC, what you see is this blanket sort of assertion that everyone must get vaccinated. And look, I, I, um, I, I don't disagree with this idea that everyone who's not immune and is medically suitable should get vaccinated as efficiently as possible. But I very strongly and vehemently disagree with the fact that we should be doing unnecessary medical treatments and folks who don't need it. And really, when you think about it, um, uh, Dr. Vliet, I, I know that you um, and I discussed several weeks ago that the Red Cross um, you know, presented some data where somewhere upwards of 20% of Americans seem to have natural immunity to, to SARS-CoV-2. They've been infected before and they're immune. That basically means that at the moment, somewhere around 20 to 30% of the population is already immune. And so the fact is that if we immunize these folks uh, who, are, who do not need to be immunized because they're already immunized, we're essentially only exposing them to the risks of harm from the vaccine. Now, someone could argue, well, those risks are very low. And that's true. The risks are probably in the one in tens to hundreds of thousands, right? So the risks are low. The risks of extreme cat catastrophe are one in a million. Let's say these Johnson & Johnson blood clots that we're dealing with, right? But the reality is that it's not really the incidence of the complication that matters. Because what, what we're doing is if we do something unnecessary to patients, if we, if we look, for example, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. I'm, I'm a heart surgeon, I, or I was uh, several years ago. And, and if I were to go in and do a sternotomy, open someone's chest and do a bypass operation on them in a setting where that patient doesn't need it, or it's a marginal benefit, and then that patient gets exposed and subjected to some of the risks associated with opening someone's chest and, and doing a bypass, well, you know, those are no longer classified as unavoidable complications. That's actually harm. Why? Because the patient did not need the therapy to which he or she was subjected. And so this concept that it's any different in the vaccine space or in any other space in medicine where you do something unnecessary to someone and they um, you know, get, uh, experience a complication from it, and that is not classified as harm, this is actually a very serious breach of medical ethics in, in the United States. And I am, I'm frankly shocked. I'm just simply shocked that our entire medical establishment in its rush to really deploy this vaccine and save us, isn't capable of slowing down and thinking about this concept for under a minute. Because any rational or, or, or reasonable physician would immediately understand that, you know, look, if someone is naturally immune, as we know, most people who've had natural infections will be, should not be getting treated with an unnecessary medical treatment, which is the vaccine in those people, right? And, and in fact- We have done that. When, with our vaccination programs over my whole adult life and in, in my career in medicine, we haven't vaccinated people who had already had the illness. Well, you know, and, and it's, it's, this is absolutely true. Look, you know, when you, the everyday Americans, anyone who's listening to this program would relate to this. Look, if you go for a new job, right, and you go to, and they send you to occupational health to see if you're immune or not, they draw a blood uh, sample from you and they do the titers of all the different, you know, microbes and viruses that we vaccinate against. And if you come back with an antibody titer that's positive, then you don't need to get vaccinated. You're immune. That's a standard of care. You know, and really the reality is that SARS-CoV-2 is a very simple coronavirus. There's nothing complex about this virus. This is a virus that's transient and goes away. 
This is a virus that gets dealt with by neutralizing antibodies and prime T cells. So if you have IgG antibodies floating around in your blood, you are by definition, highly likely to be immune. Now, um, Dr. Lee- But I no one's recommending that patients who might've been exposed or who had COVID and recovered, no one's recommending that they get an antibody test now. Absolutely. In fact, in fact, the CDC recommends against screening patients before vaccination, and this is an error. Now, you know, the CDC does recommend delaying vaccination by several months if you have a known infection, but there's no attempt made at screening who's infected or who's been previously uh, immune. And I think this is a really serious error on the part of the CDC and the FDA. Frankly, it's probably driven to a certain extent by, you know, hyper uh, inflated egos in the establishment, people like Paul Offit, for example, who, who, you know, are not amenable to reason on this issue. And frankly, it's not scientifically based. And now I was, I was struck today, I received an, a, a, a paper from Israel, from a friend. Um, and this, I, I'll, I'll just briefly tell you what this paper has sh- is showing. This paper is showing that that, and I'll read the title of it to you, is that protection of previous SARS-CoV-2 infection is similar to that of the BNT162B2 vaccine protection, okay? Now, this is from Israel. Our colleagues in Israel are saying that if you're naturally immune, if you're naturally immune, your level of protection from infection is equivalent, is equivalent to that which the vaccine imparts. This means that the vast majority of people in this country who've been vaccinated, who've been, who've been infected are also equivalently protected. And we already know this. I mean, we, we, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Now, the question of why it is that we're comfortable exposing these people to the risk of harm from this vaccine is a very good one. And I, and I, and I despite the fact that the, uh, that the establishment of the FDA and CDC are unwilling to actually address this issue, I think everyday Americans understand this. And I think really there's, there's great hope. I have great hope that everyday Americans will say, hey, I was infected before, or I think I was infected before. Why don't we screen me? Do I have antibodies? Do I have an infection? If I do, why should I get this vaccine? I'm immune. And the other reason that that is so critically important in this situation is a point that Dr. McCullough and many others, and I'm sure you have too, have brought out. And that is one of the adverse complications that we are seeing in higher numbers with this vaccine than any other in my medical career is the risk of death. Right at the moment, we're at 3,612 deaths according to the CDC Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System database, which our listeners can check out at www.openvares.com and look at what the event rates are showing for deaths and bleeding complications and blood clots and anaphylactic reactions and, and others. So, so when the, a possible endpoint and a complication is death, then we jolly well need to be paying attention to who really has the, the best chance of benefiting from the vaccine versus who could be harmed by it. Yeah, I mean, look, look I, I, um, I, so I, I'm willing to, at this point, stand by to see 
um, how the data turns out. I mean, the, the CDC and the FDA claim that there is no safety signal in terms of increased deaths. Now, I don't, I don't personally um, <laughs> accept that answer. Um, and I certainly do think that there is uh, there's a reason to believe that this vaccine or to prognosticate rather, not to believe, but to prognosticate that this vaccine could actually deploy in the midst of a pandemic cause um, you know, uh, adverse reactions. Certainly data out of, out of the United Kingdom are showing that the bell-shaped curve of ad adverse reactions is, is shifted uh, in the direction of more adverse reactions on the part of people who've been recently infected. Now in the US, uh, we're not really admitting this, uh, but everyone I know at least has had this experience where if they've had COVID and they got vaccinated, in a substantial number of these folks, those are the people who are having the most intense reactions to the, to the vaccine. Now, one of my concerns from early on, which I've raised with the CDC and the FDA, is that if you immunize a recently infected person, that those persons could, are, could be the ones that are at higher risk of being harmed or have, being adversely reacted. There are several cases actually of young people who have been anecdotally talked about in the press. One of them is, a young orthopedic surgeon uh, from Memphis, Tennessee, 36 years old by the name of Dr. J. Barton Williams. This gentleman is an accomplished Harvard alum who went to medical school, did an orthopedics residency. He's 36 years old. He's seven weeks out, of, out from his wedding and he develops an asymptomatic infection, goes ahead and gets the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, I believe it was. And after the second shot, he literally develops this hyperinflammatory response, ends up in the ICU and dies. There's another gentleman, a high school uh, teacher, 34 years old in New Mexico, you know, ha has an infection that gets the vaccine anyway, within days develops a hyperinflammatory reaction, ends up in an ICU and dies of a heart attack, right? And of course, there are many, many examples of people having thromboembolic events like strokes and, and, and heart attacks, which the CDC and the FDA are saying are not associated with the vaccine. Now, I'm willing to accept that as a hand-waving argument, but really it's just hand-waving. They, they, they really are not being very astute about it. Which brings me to the second point, which is exactly what you said and what I've uh, the, uh, you know, focused on at the beginning of this art discussion is that, look, you know, even if the complication rates were similar to any other vaccine, which, which they probably aren't, but let's assume that for a second. Um, even if that was the case, when you vaccinate, when you treat someone with a vaccine who actually does not need that vaccine because they're naturally immune, really the only thing you've exposed that person to is the risk of harm. And really at, at that moment, from an ethics perspective, from, from an epidemiological perspective, it's no longer the incidence of that harm that matters. What matters is that you've unnecessarily treated the person with a treatment that they do not need. And I think that the fact that our medical establishment and the guardians of American medicine and public health are rigidly um, sort of standing down on this idea is absolutely terrifying because it demonstrates that in the United States, we have relinquished reason. We do not think about ethical conduct anymore. And really all we care about is sort of a one-size-fits-all McDonald's type of approach to problem solving. Let's talk more about that as, as we come back. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm on Voice of a Nation. And we're talking with Dr. Norchasm about 
vaccine issues that may affect your life and health. We'll be right back. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android or Alexa. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses, as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together, and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Five incredible years, and we're just getting started. Well, they say time flies when you're having fun, but it also flies by when you're on a mission of love. Love of country, that is. Well, our goal is to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. You can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. AmericaOutloud.com. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. This is Dr. Lee for America, back with Voice of a Nation, and we are talking with Dr. Norchasm about vaccines and the risk of minority harm versus majority benefit. We were beginning to talk about the risk that are that we're seeing with vaccinating people who are already immune because they have had COVID infection or they've been exposed to COVID and developed immunity and may not have been sick. So let's go back to the point you were starting to talk about right before the break, Dr. Norchesm. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so, um, you know, I think that uh, the, the, the idea of, um, uh, of, of uh, minority harm as we discussed it, and, and this notion of medical necessity um, of any medical treatment is, is absolutely important to consider. Um, and, I, and I do believe that um, we can offer to everyday Americans um, the opportunity to screen their blood for antibodies uh, against SARS-CoV-2, which is really a marker for both B and T cell immunity the IgG levels in the blood against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein are quite telling. In fact, these, this, is the, this is the main readout that Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson used to demonstrate efficacy of the vaccine, right? So, so what we need to do is we need to help every American understand 
that this test is very readily available to them at every um, corner lab core or quest facility around the country. Tell um, our listeners what the name of the test is that they can ask their doctors to do. In many states, actually, our listeners can go online to request a test or uh, SnorQuest, for example, in Arizona. People can go in online and, and request particular tests that they can request themselves without a doctor's prescription. So let's tell our listeners what the tests are sure. that they can access and request either from their doctor or online from the commercial laboratories. Sure. So, so they're, they're obviously most people are familiar at this point with the PCR assay and the rapid antigen test for the virus itself. So that's certainly one assay that, that I think every American could get before they get vaccinated. And that's, that's at, at this point in time, it's readily available. You can get a PCR or a rapid antigen test, and, and that's not really a big deal for most people at this point. The other tests are blood tests, actually, and these are the tests that demonstrate how immune you are. Uh, and, there, and there are really three categories of them, and I, and I think it's, very, it's worthwhile you know, for every uh, American to know about them. Number one is an antibody test against the nucleocapsid antigen of SARS-CoV-2. This test will tell you if you are, you've been naturally infected in the past. So if you have nucleocapsid antibodies from SARS-CoV-2 in your blood, that means that sometime in the past, you were naturally infected. The second category of blood test is, is uh, something called the, the IgG, um, antibody test for SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. This, this antibody test will tell you if you're immune, if you have actually neutralizing antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. And then under this category is also another test called the semi-quantitative spike antibody test. And again, this will actually tell you the amount of antibody that you have, okay? So it tells you actually how many units per cc of blood of antibody you have. Now, you know, we don't exactly know what level of antibody is, is fully protective. What we do know is that there's a range of antibody tests. And in fact, in the vast majority of other, uh, you know, infections, uh, we really go for the uh, yes or no answer. So if you have an IgG antibodies detectable in your blood, that means that you have both good T-cell immunity as well as neutralizing antibodies against the, the, the virus. So if you're positive for those, that, that means that you're highly likely to be immune. Now, why it is that we are suspending the standard of care during this pandemic, it's really a puzzle to me because I think most physicians actually are fully aware, fully aware, most doctors, anyone who's gone to medical school knows that if you have IgG antibodies against a common you know, transient pathogen, that you're immune to it. Uh, this is how we do um, you know, immunity screens for employment or for school. Um, for all the pathogens that transiently infect us, things like measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, uh, the pathogens that transiently infect us and leave our body, if we have antibodies against them, we're immune. SARS-CoV-2 is no different. And I think that the, the fact that our public health officials have been un unwilling to actually inform the American public that you could very easily screen yourself to determine if you're immune or not is really stoking vaccine hesitancy, Dr. Vliet. I think that one of the things that our public health officials don't recognize and are not, have not been humble enough to appreciate and understand is that if you actually level with the American people, I think most Americans are reasonable. 
most Americans want to benefit from the, you know, from, 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 and enjoy the benefits rather of this vaccine, because everyone knows that if you get infected from, with SARS-CoV-2, you can get harm, you know, but, but folks are skeptical about whether or not they need it necessarily. And certainly, certainly, I don't think anyone in this country likes to be forced to do anything. And, you know, on the front end of this conversation, you said to me, uh, you talked about this idea of choice over our bodies. You know, in fact, you know, um, one of the big discussions that has been, uh, you know, uh, really enshrined in our, in our uh, society is this idea that we have choice over our bodies, you know? Now, the idea that, you know, you would force someone, especially someone who doesn't need a therapy, a treatment, to get it is really, is really not only draconian, but goes against every principle that our society has ever fought for. So I, I, I mean, it also goes against every principle of medical ethics going back to the days of Hippocrates 2,500 years ago. Absolutely. And I, and I you know, I have to say, um, you know, I've, I've had a, a pretty extensive discussion with, with Tucker Carlson, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago about uh, the principles of medical ethics, one of which is this principle of patient autonomy, right? So, so that, and that is that you can't really force a patient to take a treatment that they don't want to take. Okay. So you have to, you have to respect people's, you know, autonomy. And that's the idea that this idea of informed consent. It's the idea ultimately of a patient making an autonomous decision. Now, now some people say, look, you know, when it comes to a public health issue where other people's health could be harmed, that there's also this notion of justice, right? And so you have to behave in a way that's just to society as a whole. And I would submit to you that in the vaccine discussion, you know, look, if I get the vaccine and I'm protected and you choose not to get the vaccine, therefore you're not protected, you no longer pose a harm to me, right? Because I'm vaccinated and you're not, right? So the idea that I should force you or the government should force you to get vaccinated in order to protect me is sort of a, you know, it's sort of a straw man argument. And I, so I think that this idea that we're going to force people to get vaccinated um, and particularly people who don't need it. Because if you, you know, look, if you, if you vaccinate someone who doesn't need to be vaccinated, you're really not only violating the person, the, the, the principle of patient autonomy, you're also uh, violating the principle of beneficence because look, there's no benefit in vaccinating someone who's already immune, right? So, so it, is a, it is an absolute and catastrophic disaster in medical ethics in violation of medical ethics to force people who are already immune to get vaccinated for some prince, for some sort of, you know, idea of utilitarian justice where the majority um, need to be, need to benefit. And for public for the sake of public health, we have to force vaccinate everyone. Well, on one count, many of these folks don't need to be vaccinated because they're already immune. And on a second count, the person who doesn't get vaccinated is not protected. The person who does get vaccinated and chooses to get vaccinated is protected, right? So the person who gets vaccinated has nothing to worry about. You know, well, that, that's right. And, and the, the problem with what you've just described is the fact that it's such a common sense analysis. And this is what lay people are doing on their own and why the public health officials comments are not making sense to the average American. And I agree with you. I think 
people are much smarter than our government officials give them credit for being. I think they're quite capable of making their decisions. And if you level with people and tell them the truth and give them risk ba benefit balance tailored to their needs, they, they, they make good decisions, but they need good information in order to make good decisions. The old computer phrase, and you may have even used this term, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. You, you know, Dr. Vliet, you know, you know, Dr. Vliet, I, I'll, I'll tell you something and I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be honest with you and your audience, right? You know, I went to an Ivy League um, institution um, for my undergrad. I went to University of Pennsylvania. It's an institution founded by Benjamin Franklin. It's one of the top 10 colleges in the country. Then I went to Penn Medical School and I got a PhD and an MD. And then I went up to, up to Harvard, which is you know the, one of the oldest academic institutions in the country. I did a cardiothoracic fellowship there and I was on the faculty there and then at Penn and at Thomas Jefferson University, right? There is, unfortunately, and, I, and I'll say this from personal experience, as you get honed in this, in this sort of world of ivory tower expertise, right? There's this level of arrogance and hubris that's indoctrinated in every single one of us, right? Uh, and uh, along with it comes, uh, come, come all kinds of regalia, MDs and PhDs and grants and fellowships and all this great stuff, right? But in the process, what happens is that we become arrogant and we, we become blind and deaf and dumb. What do we become blind and deaf and dumb to? We become blind and deaf and dumb to what happens to people when they get harmed because we are rigid, because our egos are rigid. And you see, here's the problem, right? I have an MD and a PhD from Penn. I did my residency at Penn and at Harvard, okay? I only saw this problem in our establishment, this problem of hubris, of expert hubris, right? When my wife got harmed, I only saw it. Amy and I only saw this hubris of experts when we got harmed. And I'm seeing it again right now in this vaccine discourse. This, what we're seeing here, this draconian approach to vaccine mandates and irrational thinking about, you know, unnecessary vaccination of people who are already naturally immune, this incapacity to listen to reason, to diversify our approach over therapeutics and vaccines equally, this willingness to take away people's autonomy of thinking, this is hubris on the part of experts who populate our government. And if it's kept up, what will happen is what we caught a glimpse of on the 6th of January. What will happen is what we saw when George Floyd was murdered. You see, minority harm isn't about color or ethnicity. It's about empathy, it's about stepping down off these pedestals of expertise where we know better. I have an MD and a PhD, therefore I know better than average Joe. Well, that's not the way it works. The way it works is average Joe and his kids all got COVID and they don't wanna get the vaccine because it doesn't make sense to them. And if some expert on CNN wants to dangle a carrot in front of average Joe and his kids and say, hey, unless you get this vaccine, you're not going to be able to enjoy the freedoms of being an American. Well, you know what the answer to that is? The answer to that is no, not in this country.
I couldn't agree more. And that is very, very well said. And, you know, it's interesting. You make the point about not seeing the hubris in medicine and academic medicine in particular until it hit your wife and the harm, the arrogance and hubris caused her harm and and caused, caused her death. Let's face it. You know, you know, I have to say, I have to say, uh, that, that we, yeah, you know, this this hu- level of hubris is what killed my wife. But I want to, uh, I want to submit to you that if Dr. Um, Walensky, or if Dr. Woodcock, or if Dr. Marks, these people who are in charge of our establ- of our government establishment, or if Dr. Fauci, right, had a daughter or a son, right, th- themselves, who had had a pri- prior COVID infection. And these, and they were immune. And then they went ahead and got the vaccine anyway. And then their son or daughter fell to a disastrous complication. They would feel very, very differently than they currently are. And oh, this, is the problem, this, this is the problem of minority harm. In order to be able to focus and pay attention to minority pe- substance of people who are getting harmed, you have to have empathy. You have to be able to put your shoes in your brother's, put your feet in your brother's shoes and your sister's shoes. And if you can't do that, then you're arrogant, then you have hubris, then you're governed by ego, and you are corrupting science in the same way, in the same way that historic atrocities have done, right? There have been times in history when science has been corrupted, okay, and has, and has ignored and violated the rights of minority substance of people for this idea of majority benefit. And really the only solution to it is empathy, empathy for people who are the least amongst us. If we don't have it, we are arrogant. And if we build our system on this, Dr. Vliet, it will eventually fall. And that is one of the principles on which this country was founded and one of the principles that we've gone to war to support and defend. And it's certainly one of the principles that came out of the Nuremberg trials after World War II. And we have, all of the civilized countries have been operating under the Nuremberg Code ever since World War II, which says you cannot experiment on people without their consent. Look, it goes, it goes even before the, the, the World War II and the Nuremberg trials. Look, our country fought a civil war because what we had in place was a utilitarian system that was designed to benefit the majority in the society and was in the process subjugating and dehumanizing a minority subset of people. I mean, yes. that, was a, that was a very dramatically stark example of it, where you take a group of people on the basis of the color of their skin, you subjugate them, you enslave them, you dehumanize them, and you take advantage of their labor for the benefit of the majority, right? Now, I don't want to, look, I don't want to turn this into a race issue, but in our society and in our nature, in our nation, it, the, the, the founding principles have always had to do with the majority defending the rights of the individual and the minority. Now, at the onset, you know, the founding fathers got the slavery issue wrong, right? And then a civil war was fought about it. In fact, they knew that eventually this is going to come to roost. Now, we've abandoned those principles. We are no longer focused on the idea of how best can we defend and protect in an ethical space 
the rights and the lives and the property of minority subsets of people. And when I tell you that those minority subsets of people who get harmed by the vaccine and who did not need the vaccine to begin with are exactly similar. They are the philosophical brethren of, our, of the slaves. This is, not, this is not an intellectual jump. This is not me trying to create, take advantage of identity politics, right? Now, I'm very sensitive to the fact that many people don't wanna let this conversation happen. But in truth, what's happening here is that folks like Dr. Fauci, folks like Dr. Marx, fo folks like Dr. Offit, when they're unwilling to accept that a naturally infected and immune person does not need to get vaccinated, what they are doing is they are imposing harm on those people. Exactly. And, and actually, there are some racial ethnic minorities that are at which we've known from the data over the last 14 months that are at higher risk for complications of the COVID illness, Look, Black, uh, Hispanics yeah. and Native Americans. And in, in what we also know is that those populations of people also have higher rates of underlying inflammatory conditions like diabetes and heart disease and insulin resistance. Uh -huh which makes them at higher risk for the very robust inflammatory reaction triggered by the virus. And Absolutely. if we don't, I mean, sorry, by the vaccine, and if we don't know what their immunity status is before we vaccinate them, we are putting them at higher risk. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, look, it, this is actually just common sense for, for Dr. Woodcock and Dr. Walensky and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Marks. It's common sense. We already know that a larger proportion of our society, who are people of color, are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. This also means that a larger subset of these folks are going to be naturally immune. So really, we are doing something unnecessary in a large subset of folks who belong to, you know, people of color and, 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 and more ethnic backgrounds in, in this society, right? And so we really are putting those folks at even higher risk by saying, look, here, we'll, we're going to give you an unnecessary shot, right? And this idea, the fact that the, fact that, um, the, the, the guardians of the establishment don't understand this concept is so, so profoundly racist. This is, this is actually the epitome. This is the epitome of atrocious racism that you would know that a larger proportion of Black people in this country are naturally infected and immune and that you're going to proceed with giving these folks an unnecessary medical treatment and exposing them to the higher rate of harm? Look, I, if, if that's not racism, I don't know what is. Well, that was part of, I mean, that, that's been some of the ethical issues that have led to Blacks and Native Americans being suspicious of the government forcing medical treatments. Or you know, and they should be. Every American should be sus uh, suspicious well, yeah. of the fact that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Woodcock and Dr. Marks and Dr. Walensky are not willing to concede. They are not willing to concede, Dr. Fleet. And that, that just raises people's red flags in their gut even Absolutely. more. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, this, is a, a, this is an unbelievable, unbelievable error in judgment. I don't think any of these folks are malicious. I don't think any of these folks are racist either. I just think they're not thinking straight. 
And, and this is, this is, this is gonna, this is gonna create a lot of problems for a lot of unsuspecting and undeserving Americans. And sure, they're going to be in the minority, you know, they may be one in 350, like Dr. Reed was, like Amy Reed was. But let me tell you what, in this country, we decide every person matters. And as we are running out of time, I just want to thank you for your powerful voice. And we are grateful for your efforts and our listeners, those who don't have a voice, need those of us physicians who can speak out to do exactly as you've been doing. And I want to thank you for that. This is your life. It's time to get involved, get loud and speak out. Don't be afraid to speak out and help make the world around you a better place.